This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. For this episode, we wanted to take a step outside the familiar waters of the legal world and take a deep dive into the debates animating conservative political and intellectual circles over the economy. To that end, we welcome Dr. Samuel Gregg. He's an old friend of ours and a former guest on our podcast. He is the Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy at the American Institute for Economic Research and a contributing editor at Law and Liberty. The author of 16 books, including the prize-winning The Commercial Society, Wilhelm Röpke's Political Economy, Becoming Europe, the prize-winning Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization, and now most recently, The Next American Economy, Nation, State, and Markets in an Uncertain World. That book is the subject for our discussion today. He writes regularly on political economy, finance, American conservatism, Western civilization, and natural law theory. He's an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute and a visiting scholar at the B. Kent Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He can be followed on Twitter at Dr. Samuel Gregg. We hope you enjoy our program. Sam, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back on our Anchoring Truths podcast. As we were saying just before we recorded, you are now our first returning guest on the podcast. Uh, and so it's a real treat to have you uh, back to discuss your new book. So you wrote, you wrote this book largely because of, quote, a corrosion of a pro-market consensus once shared by many American policymakers, politicians, uh, opinion shapers, and citizens. And this corrosion, therefore, made the U.S. economy's future, quote, up for discussion to an extent that had not been evident since the 1970s. So what are uh, those um, elements of the um, uh, economy's future um, that you see? Well, basically, Garrett, that is, in fact, the, the, the sort of debate in which this book enters into. It's a debate about the future of the American economy that uh, is manifest across the public square in America, but particularly on the right, uh, insofar as the American right, at least since the 19, late 1970s, shall we say, had more or less arrived at a position in favour of liberalisation of the domestic economy, um, a full-throated embrace of trade liberalization vis-a-vis America and the rest of the world, considerable skepticism about the merits of direct interventions into the economy, into particular sectors of the economy, which we often call industrial policy. And that's a consensus that I think more or less existed uh, from the late 1970s onward. In some respects, it was symbolized by people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, right? And it was very apparent to me in the mid-2010s that that was starting to break down. There had always been people on, certainly on the left, who had a very different vision of what they thought the American economy should be. Mm -hmm. 
But on the right, we started to see the reemergence of a conservative case for using the government more in the economy on the basis that either there was an assumption that markets uh, weren't always delivering optimal outcomes or that markets were effectively corroding important cultural foundations, if you like, of a free society, in particular segments of of that society, uh, what I suspect we would conventionally call blue-collar America, Mm -hmm. uh, and a more skeptical view of the impact and nature of trade liberalization. Now, in the 1990s, Pat Buchanan, in many respects, was a flag bearer for many of these questions. Remember, he basically ended George W. Uh, George H. W. Bush's chances of getting reelected back in 1992-1993, because he essentially uh, railroaded Bush's campaign by signaling that there were there was a considerable body of conservative opinion that, for different reasons, did not like parts of the economic agenda that had been pursued by the right in America, certainly since the early 1980s. And it did seem to me that that in this respect, a choice increasingly was opening up for Americans concerning the direction of the economy. And one path is what I call a version of state capitalism. And by that, I don't mean outright collectivization of the economy, I don't mean things like the abolition of private property. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking much more about a more positive view of state intervention and a greater willingness to use the government in the economy to try and deliver different economic outcomes that would otherwise be delivered by markets. So that's one side. And that that implied use of protectionist policies, industrial policy, um and a, a more willingness a greater willingness to use the federal government in particular mm-hmm. in achieving certain economic goals as opposed to uh those who were arguing that no we actually should be much more forward in making the case for liberalization domestically a stronger case for free trade etc And that, I think, is the divide that has opened up on the right. We should also mention this divide is to a certain extent also reflected on the left as well, because you still have someone like, I I say, a Larry Summers, for Mm -hmm. example, who uh, would be described as a sort of mildly pro-market Clinton Democrat, um, and who, like a lot of that wing of the Democratic Party, really embraced to a certain to to an extent, I think that had not been foreseen, the case for markets in the late 1990s, mm-hmm. as opposed to people like Elizabeth Warren and others who very much want to see greater intervention, greater regulation in the economy, etc. So those those are the choices, the economic choices that I think. Um, the book tries to address, and I'm obviously, as you know, very much on the pro-market side. But one of the things I, I do say, and we may talk about this later, is that I do think that it's a forlorn exercise 
for free marketers to pretend that a lot has not changed since the 1980s. I mean, I'm constantly saying to some of my free fellow free marketers, we're not living in the 1980s anymore. The country has changed. The culture has changed. Um, there are new challenges domestically and internationally, and free marketers need to think about those things and how they factor those things into the policies that they recommend. But I also argue that I think there's a there's a very urgent need for a better normative case to be made for free markets. In the, I'm, I do this in the, particularly towards the end of the book because I think free marketers generally are lousy at making normative arguments, partly because some of them are just frankly uncomfortable with mm-hmm. the normative side of things because a lot of them are positivists or utilitarians, assuming they know what that means, and that's mm-hmm. sometimes not all. And I don't say that condescendingly. I just think that that's just a reality you find with a lot of people on the pro-market right. Um, and I've, I've long argued that free marketers need to have much stronger normative arguments if they're going to be persuading Americans of the the rightness of markets. And by that, I don't mean just the efficiency. I mean the stronger normative case of how free markets fit into the American experiment and what the American founding was about in terms of the ideals that it tried to embody and represent. No, I think I think one of the great uh, features of your book is that you do a strong job throughout of anticipating and offering counter-arguments uh, to some of your um, likely critics. Before we get into you know the real substance of the book, can you tell us a bit how that informed how you shaped it? Well, thanks. That's that's a good question. So thanks for asking that. And the reason I did that was because I think in a lot of these economic debates, and I'm sure you've noticed this as well, there's a tendency to caricature and create straw men of the other person's position. Um, I, I hear this, for example, when I hear people talk about, let's call, let's say the, um, those conservatives who are more for, in favor of markets and things like that, they're dismissed as sort of, you're just collectivists. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think that's entirely fair because they're not proposing, um, what I would understand to be full blown collectivization of the economy. But on the other hand, when I, when I hear the language of market fundamentalism, uh, to describe those on the free market side. And I often say that's not a particularly fair description either. I, I don't think that that's character, a characteristic or accurate description of the way that most free marketers think about these types of questions. But above all, I wanted to give those, those arguments that, as you know, I obviously disagree with. I wanted to give them the fullest presentation possible so that I didn't caricature them, that I took some of their concerns seriously. So because then I think you're just in a much better position to say, well, this is why I think industrial policy is problematic and why it won't work. Or, yes, trade is a complicated question, but protectionism is not the way forward when it comes to dealing with some of the very real challenges that we face, for example, from uh, communist China. So I think that's that, and that I, that type of I, I, that type of fair representation I think is is in many respects, particularly in the current climate, really lacking, really really lacking when it comes to this this debate. The caricatures and straw men 
are thrown around all the time. And that doesn't lead us to much clarity when it comes to the truth of these matters or working out where the real differences are, what are, what are real differences, what are false differences, but also being able to articulate a proper chart uh, course forward for the American economy over the next quarter century. Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason why I, I think our listeners will benefit from this conversation is that it's a peek behind the curtain of those subjects that are animating debates among policymakers, scholars, writers, nonprofit executives, um, and even you know, uh, uh, people on the ground like you know, staffers and lobbyists. Because if one were to look at the old assumptions and how those old assumptions were translated into policy, I don't know if you'd get too many differences between 1990, 1993 and then like 2013. And that was a you know, 20-year period. Yet, as you say, in that mid-2010s, there, there was a change. And ideas that were up for grabs or that had not been up for grabs for a while certainly became up for grabs. And then, of course, when uh, Donald Trump came into the White House and an administration that was really you know, a, a tabula rasa for a lot of these policies, which um, if you want to call it the neoliberal consensus, um, you know, from uh, uh, Bush one to Clinton to Bush two to Obama, they there were there were there was really not too many uh, differences as far as on on on, on trade, for example. Um, but that Trump came in and uh, you know looked at these issues afresh. So I think and really shattered that consensus. He really right. shattered that consensus. I think. Yeah, and and I think it's it's very important for us to ground our understanding of how these ideas are um, are being rethought through the lens of just coming to grips with how much of either the Trump election was an aberration or whether now this is being seen as not only a rival to the neoliberal consensus, but maybe even a, a permanent fixture now in our in our national politics. Do you agree with that? I think you described the 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 conditions and the circumstances uh, pretty well, because I do think there was, certainly on trade issues, there was certainly a liberalization, trade liberalization consensus that America had, remember, America committed itself to trade liberalization after the Second World War through things like what was called the, the GATT, the WTO, etc. And this was seen as necessary because it was a way of stemming the economic nationalism that many people would argue played a role in the rise of totalitarian regimes in Europe, etc. And that was a type of mild consensus. And then really from the 1980s onwards, as you say, through successive Republican and Democratic administrations, it was very much a pro-free trade agenda. You didn't have um, certainly the leadership of those parties arguing about the, you know, the, the core the core dimensions of that particular policy. But at the same time, let's not forget that some of these issues in terms of the divisions they create in an economic and, and political life are not new. So remember back when NAFTA was passed back in 1993, if you look at the way that the Congress voted along on, on about that, it wasn't on straight party lines. You had as many Republicans and Democrats for NAFTA, as many Republicans and Democrats against NAFTA. 
So there was this, this played into some differences that went beyond the, the left right divide and said much more about particular industries and particular regions of the country. But if you go back further in American history, and I think people like uh, Douglas Irwin, who I think is probably the premier trade historian of the United States, he points out that debates about tariffs, for example, really animated 19th century American politics in a way that up until recently we would have found rather surprising. In fact, I would argue that in the context of 19th century American politics, once once, the slavery issue was obviously the issue that was on everyone's mind, but tariffs was very closely behind there. This is what they argued about. Right. right? Yeah, we interviewed Troy Senek about his biography on Grover Cleveland and the tariff, the tariff, that, that, that was right. That's how they raised before the income tax. That's how they raised the vast majority of uh, funds for the federal government. Right. And it also played into important questions about America's relationship with the rest of the world. And you had, particularly when it came to countries like Britain, which was seen as, you know, Britain was the free trade superpower of the 19th century. And after the Civil War, the United States opted for more or less a, a protectionist type of regime. And, but there were arguments about that uh, all through different Congresses, all the way up through the 19th century in a way that that uh, we look back and we realize, OK, so what we're arguing about now in some respects is we're revisiting and reengaging many of the same questions, at least on the level of principle, that were engaged by American politicians and policymakers all through the 19th century, really even up until the the outbreak of the Second World War. Right. So this book, again, to give our give our listeners uh, some context, this book in its earliest pages um, stakes out a, a path of addressing the concerns that would be broadly labeled um, on the right, uh, because uh, Sam, uh, you're you're definitely a man of the right, so <laughs> you're speaking with with a bit more um, of uh, of uh, of a sympathetic audience uh, on the right. But this book is a not so subtle criticism of those economic ideas uh, that are um, resonant among national conservatives. And listeners to our podcast will be quite familiar with the uh, National Conservatism Conference. Um, uh, that the James Wilson Institute was a co-sponsor this year. We had a panel on law. Um, and full disclosure, I consider myself a big-picture supporter of the NatCon project, though with the need to hash out details and, and refinements. So even though you're a critic throughout the book of the NatCon perspective on economics, you recognize that the populist and economic nationalist arguments um, at the core of the NatCon movement um, have led people um, like you to rethink old assumptions of the pro market consensus. Um, so is your argument that NatCon, uh, NatCons have arguments that resonate but lack empirical or demonstrated outcomes that are conducive to the goals they seek? Or is it that the NatCon um, folks' criticisms are just completely unfounded? I think the NatCons and even more broadly people on the right who are articulating many of these arguments in favor of protectionism, industrial policy, etc., I mean, they are pointing to some significant social and cultural problems in the United States that I think are uh, unquestionably exist. Uh, it does seem to me, for example, that with 
uh, blue-collar America, there are some significant issues of, let's call them a cultural, even moral nature, the degree of opiate abuse, the uh, the fact that blue-collar America doesn't go to church, it's detached. And by that, I just, I'm not just talking about religious belief, I'm talking more about detached from civil society, particularly young white men, uh, and increasingly, as people like Nicholas Eberstadt have shown, increasingly young young women as well. So it's not just young men we're talking about now, it's seeping over into young, young women as well. And, and there's a fair amount of empirical research suggesting that these are significant problems. So, no, I don't deny that. I also don't deny that the rise of China obviously necessitates rethinking through trade questions because that has been the epicenter of America's relationship with China and a Chinese regime, which I I argue in the book um, started going down very different paths at around about 2008 when it it came to its own thinking about trade and and, uh, its own domestic economy. So we can't pretend, market, market liberals like myself can't pretend that these are somehow fictitious, that these are just made up, that this is just pure resultum or something like that. No, I think, and I say in the book, I think these are significant questions that need to be addressed. My problem with uh, many of the arguments that I'm hearing from some sections of the right, first of all, this cause-effect arguments, I think in many cases, I, I hear a type of economistic argument for some of these things, that Trade liberalization has led to certain social outcomes and that's damaged particular parts of American society. I I question the cause effect of that. I think some of the problems we see in a lot of blue collar America have a lot more to do with social and cultural dysfunctionality and relatively little to do with the economy per se. And I also think some of the solutions being proposed, uh, empirically speaking, are problematic in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, but also I don't think they deliver the types of outcomes that some of the people uh, in the in the, the world of, of national conservatives are arguing will happen. Uh, but also I think we get back to this normative question, right, and this normative question of where the economy and economic concerns fit into the political calculus because America is has an economy. It's not an economy with a country attached to it. So it's a country that has an economy. And I think that um, you know the, the national much many people on the national conservative right have pointed to this and are suggesting that some free marketers have forgotten that. And I think in some cases that's actually a fair critique. Not all. I, don't, I think that's not a majority of free marketers. But when I hear people, free marketers say things like, well, I could live anywhere. Sovereignty is not important. Borders are irrelevant. A sort of, um, I hear a type of um, almost Kantian perpetual peace argument running through some of these things. And I think that's all highly questionable. Now, that's not to give up on markets. In fact, you would know that I make the case, well, no, we actually need to be thinking about how we reinvigorate markets and the foundations of markets and all these things. But free marketers have just got to do a lot better job at the normative side of things. And unfortunately, I, I think many of them are just not equipped 
to do so. Mm-hmm. No, I think I, I think largely the the task of anybody that is on the right currently and is looking at the uh, situation that faces us with uh, at least two more years with a Democratic administration, um, it, it falls to us to get the argument correct because if there is a Republican administration in 2025, all eyes are going to be on them for leadership. And if there is a continuous, messy um, disagreement and it doesn't translate into anything like a coherent policy um, or set of policies going forward, I think it's going to further muddle this debate. Um, that's not to say it's going to be, you know, the, more, you know, the <laughs> sort of, you know, the, the catchiest slogan and the clearest program whatsoever. Um, but I think these are important times right now to, you know, hash this out. And again, it, it underscores why I think your book is is very timely. Um, but again, I want to I want to really dig into this because I think um, just again for our listeners, these are the discussions that are truly animating folks on the right currently. Um, these discussions um, are, I think, the ones that uh, are going to get hashed out in the uh, Republican primary for the presidency as well. Um, I could see I could see um, these kinds of uh, uh, debates not only on the debate stage, but I think. Um, as candidates try to distinguish themselves, um, even outside of um, you know two-minute sound bites, um, I think um, putting putting together an appealing um, uh, message um, on this, um, and and of course a uh, a set of priorities, um, I think it's it's going to do um, a, a lot of um, work at helping us shape just what are the stakes, not only in 2024, but then you know what what actually can be done um, in those years ahead. Um, so. Uh, just to come back to um, Pat Buchanan, because I think he really is one of these figures that we can look back on now, you know, 20, 30 years from those challenges for the White House that he made, but also the criticisms he had of um, NAFTA in the in the mid 90s, uh, and then later the Iraq War, as <laughs> I think in, in, in good measure, um, you know, being vindicated. Um, and so a lot of the NatCon uh, folk are looking back on on Buchanan's um, uh, criti- uh, you know commentary and criticism, uh, and seeing just you know what made him uh, and and his diagnoses um, uh, seem to be a lot more reasonable now, uh, maybe than even uh, in uh, in uh, in his own um, day when he was making those criticism. And so you uh, highlight. A line of his from 1998 on trade, which is uh, a, a topic I want to dig into for a little bit. Um, he said, quote, the hidden cost of free trade included broken homes, uprooted families, vanished dreams, delinquency, vandalism, and crime. But you would probably say that these, even in the mid-90s, these were reflective of cultural domestic trends more than direct cause and effect uh, 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 trade policies. Yes? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And the reason I say that is because when I look at some of the things like crime, things like the collapse of the two-parent family, rates of illegitimacy, uh, drug abuse, etc., I have to think that... Uh, uh, the consequences of the 1960s, the Cultural Revolution, the let's call it the social libertarianism, 
the uh, move towards things like self-expression being the essence of liberty, these types of things. I, I, I have to think, my, my own view is that those things are far more important if you're wanting to understand um, some of the breakdown that we see, because I just don't think tariffs have much to do with marital breakdown. I don't think putting tariffs in place is going to fix some of those particular problems. So I, I suppose my, my critique is that I, and I, I think I said this before, when I listen to some of the um, conservative critiques or explanations, shall we say, of some of the social phenomena, it all comes across as rather economistic. It's rather economistic, which I find puzzling because I think conservatives, by definition, are generally not economistic. They're not into a materialist explanation of reality. They generally tend towards a more culturally aware, more societal aware approach to understanding complex social realities. Now, I will say there's no question that trade liberalization uh, can introduce disruption into settled patterns that have been there for considerable periods of time. Because if you have tariffs in place, that means that particular industries, even particular businesses, those who have the better political connections than others can protect themselves to a certain extent from foreign competition and even domestic competition as well. And they tend to become gradually sort of uh, complacent, uncompetitive, et cetera. And then when eventually either the tariffs are removed or reduced or the competition from abroad or from a different part of the country becomes so overwhelming, then of course you're going to have significant problems in some of these particular areas. But but keeping tariffs in place, I would argue, just exacerbates these deeper problems, these deeper economic problems over time. The more you encourage tariffs, the more the more complacency, the the uncompetitiveness, the lack of entrepreneurship and creativity just becomes more and more apparent. So, so that so go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was I was I was gonna I was gonna I'll let you finish for sure. No, so I think these are so so yes, trade liberalization does introduce um, certain types of competitive pressures into the economy. But I happen to think that in the long term, those competitive pressures are good for the country. Because I don't think it's wise for any country to try and feel itself off or pretend that other people in other parts of the world or even people in different parts of the United States are going to come up with different, more efficient, more creative ways of doing things and if you're not in a position to adapt quickly, which is what tariffs discourage you from doing that, they actively incentivize you to look to the government to protect you from these things rather than saying, no, no, we've got to change. We've got to make some radical changes and that's going to be hard, but in the long term, it's good. That's my argument for why I think things like tariffs are just not a very good um, way of dealing with some of these questions. Yeah, I think so. This is this is where I sort of find myself um uh, revising in, in in general, I think uh, I, I I hew to a far more um, uh, across the board uh, 
resistance to tariffs when I was, you know, studying economics. Um, uh, definitely considered myself more of the the classical, um, you know, libertarian or the Chicago school on this. But then, you know, I read these case studies, such as you know, <laughs> Reagan dealing with the Japanese um, car makers in the 1980s, and Wells King at a, at American Compass has an interesting um, uh, article on this, where um, it, in a in a very targeted way, you can encourage your uh, domestic industry to. Um, Sorry, your domestic uh, manufacturing base to work with um, foreign uh, foreign companies um, if they are temporarily insulated from foreign competition, for di direct competition from uh, from foreign companies. And really, it's the story of why car makers, foreign car makers, produce their um, automobiles in the American South as opposed to in Detroit. And so, the maybe the way I could conceive of the NatCon position being vindicated is if interventions are done in that kind of far more limited but thought thought out way to encourage um, domestic production as opposed to the uh, the example with um, you know uh, uh, Solyndra versus you know crony capitalism versus the Chinese um, uh, solar uh, you know the Chinese solar industry. I, I guess I wonder: Is this more of an exercise in like prudence and statesmanship rather than um, uh, uh, an argument about whether or not tariffs, in principle, are are justified or not? Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, I think if you look at tariffs, and this extends to industrial policy as well, I should say tariffs and quo. I, I say I use tariffs and quotas interchangeably, although they are different. They 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 have a similar effect. Yeah, and my there's a couple of things I would say. First of all, that the the use of tariffs and let's call it this more intervention of interventionist approach, even if you are conceiving it as being limited for a time period, et cetera, et cetera, um, there's parameters put around it and all that. I, it would be interesting if tariffs and such policies were actually driven by such things. I think the reality is, and I think the public choice people have a point here, these things get captured by interest groups extremely quickly and are usually have very little to do with the actual economic situation. It has a lot more to do with how much clout you wield in places like Washington, DC. And again, this is not this is something that public choice people talk about. But you can also go back and look at Adam Smith talked about this. He said, you know, for everyone that talks about, well, this is in the interest of the common good of the public good. If you dig down, you soon discover actually no, it's a group of merchants who who have good connections with members of parliament or members of the of the ministry, etc. And there, that's what really drives these drives these sorts of things. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is that. Tariffs and other such policies, even when they're proposed as temporary measures, they tend to become permanent. So if you look at, I mean, the steel industry is the classic. Yeah, and you document that in the book. Right, right. They're constantly saying, well, we, we just need this for this certain period of time. Well, they've been needing that since the 1950s, I think. <laughs> so that's a, that's, a long, that's a long temporary intervention. So that's the second, uh, the second thing. A third thing I would argue is that I, I question whether even temporary things can will affect the most optimal type of adjustment. 
that's needed in a particular economic sector. Because I think even if you put in tariffs or some sort of industrial policy for ostensibly a temporary period of time, I still think you're ending up putting off the inevitable adjustments that are going to be coming down the line. Now, when it comes to something like reducing tariffs, I I, I happen to think there's a good case for gradual reductions rather than just outright abolition, because I think some of the economic effects of that immediately would be very difficult to bear for some communities in some parts of the United States. But I do think a gradual phase reduction of tariffs is, is generally preferable. Just, and it's, it's also more politically sellable, frankly, than simply just abolishing these things uh, outright. So, I, I, yes, for all those reasons, I'm sceptical of the, well, we need these things for temporary measures so that we can get through to the next stage. Uh, I think it generally tends not to work out quite like that. And I, and I'm not being I'm not one of these people who sees bad motives everywhere, mm-hmm. but I think when it comes to tariffs and you look at the history of tariffs both here and abroad, it would be nice to think it was guided by you use the phrase phrase statesmanship enlightened statesmen. It's very rare that that has ever been the case. I think it's much more driven by established interests who who really care about themselves primarily first and foremost, rather than the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. I, I, do think, I do think it's interesting that you know, Reagan was in the White House um, during that example of the you know, negotiations with uh, you know, the Japanese car makers. From what I've, I've, I understand, um, you, you had Reagan acting more as the union representative trying to drive a, a good deal. And so you know, when, I, when, I, when I kind of uh, uh, think about that, I think of that as the model of statesmanship, just trying to drive a really hard bargain at the highest levels, as opposed to punting to interest groups to determine what is this administration's trade policy going to be. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's the, you know, Adam Smith talked about tariffs as a type of negotiating tool. He's very explicit about that. Now he doesn't have. He's, he he still thinks that it tends to be a bad idea because he mm-hmm. thinks that in the end these things can tend to be captured by interest groups. But that's one area where he says, I mean, he's he tends to be against imposing tariffs even if the other side do it because he says the tariffs will hurt you just as much as they hurt the people that you're ostensibly trying to negotiate with. But in of course, this is, and this gets into this, this broader question of the relationship between economics and politics, right? Because mm-hmm. trade policy is one of those things that's extremely difficult to separate that out from domestic policy, politics, but also foreign policy. Oh, yeah. As well. It's very difficult. It's very, now that's not an argument, I think, for the United States to say, well, we just, 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 we should just do tariffs because everyone else does. Why wouldn't we? But that's one of the realities, I think, that those are people like myself who are very much free traders. We need to be thinking more about how one advances the case for free trade in the given political conditions of the time. So pretending that China is not a problem, I think, is not, a, is not, is not, is not just bad statesmanship. It's bad economic statesmanship as well. Now, I still think you can advance a case for trade liberalization, even when you're dealing with a seriously problematic, what I call a communist authoritarian 
nationalist, mercantilist state like like China. But you can still do that, but you've got to be aware of these things. And I think the best free trade people tend to be much more conscious of that mm-hmm. than than those who prefer simply to ignore those things. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I think conceptually, the free traders who are aware that you can't just sloganeer your way to uh, you know policy success or you know actually delivering um, you know improved conditions um, for uh, you know the you know, for the citizenry. Um, I think uh, those are the ones that are going to you know hopefully take the most like critical eye to whether you know the rhetoric meets um, the reality and. Um, I think one of the one of the the, the sharper writers on this, um, from a more free market skeptic perspective, but but one that you know I think offers some trenchant observations is Julius Krein at American Affairs, who has written about how uh, in that same period that we've been discussing, um, you know the late '80s uh, to present, um, we have seen this economy become a lot more specialized, and in particular, um, what he describes as the uh, increasing financialization of the American economy and uh, becoming far more not only services oriented, but becoming sort of managerial, um, even more even more so um, in, in, in recent decades. And one of his criticisms is that this is being slanted to such extremes as that uh, such that we get not only financialization, we get esoteric financialization with extreme risk taking right now. Now, I think what his criticism, this is not him, this is more me now. I think what his criticism is, of, especially, you know, your book being the next American economy, he would, uh, I think what he's arguing is that the direction that we've been taking with um, sort of a rudderless neoliberalism has been one that maybe now has placed us on, again, this is me, not him, the wrong side of the trade and liberal economic laugher curve, where we have not cultivated our own sort of base, our domestic base, be it manufacturing or be it uh, just you know, our, our own citizens being given the tools to succeed as economic actors in the 21st century. Do you make any? Do you make anything of this criticism that we've we've kind of become very very conducive to success at sort of those the highest levels without a strong enough concern for those people who don't have the kind of training to participate in uh, the American economy at the highest levels? Well, there's a lot of different things going on there. Yeah. So let's just let's just let's, let's just unpack some of this. And anywhere you want to start, anywhere. No, no, there's a, there's a lot of very. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you're pointing to, which I think need addressing. So, in terms of the financialization of the economy, in terms of the esoteric financial instruments and all that, a couple of things I'll say. Well, first of all, America has always been a very capital-intensive economy. We do capital better than anyone else in the world. And we've done, that's been the case for, I would argue, uh, certainly, I, I would say, say, starting in the 1800s and really accelerating in the 1900s when America really supplants Britain as the financial capital of the world. So we've always had a very strong financial sector. And I'm very glad we do, actually, because it, it gives us such capital. In, uh, ta- we, I think we underestimate um, how capital poor 
even a lot of developed Western countries are compared to ours. So that's the first thing. Second, the second thing, so that's a good thing. The second thing I would say is that I think it's important to keep in mind that much of the, the type of problem that, that people like Julius Krein are pointing to, frankly, I think a lot of this is a result of, um, uh, a high, a hugely, re- the huge degree of regulation that, co- that characterizes uh, the financial sector as a whole, which actively in many cases incentivizes people to engage in excessively risky behavior because they know the government will bail them out, right? I mean, <laughs> the moral hazard problem, I think, goes along with this heavy regulation of the economy. So I think that's that's something that I don't hear um, people like Julius Crane talking about very much or other just general critics of what's going on in the American financial sector. I mean, we often hear, you've heard the, the expression, Goldman Sachs is really government Sachs. Yeah. <laughs> Cause <laughs> I mean, the revolving really, door. Yeah. The revolving door. And, and so, so our financial sector, unfortunately, I would argue is, is first of all, overregulated. Secondly, it's way too tied into Washington DC which means that it's not consumer focused. It's very, very focused upon how do we get a regulatory arrangement that's going to suit us and our company and the way we do things as opposed to our potential competitors. So I think some of the problems that he's pointing to, um, I, I think the cause and effect is where I would disagree with him about a lot of this. Another thing I would say is that we are experiencing the benefits, if you like, of uh, the specialization that follows from the division of labor. America's competitive advantage lies very much in the service sector now. And that's, and I happen to think that that's the direction you want to go in because, uh, I'm not sure there's anything particularly glamorous about working in a coal mine. Um, it's backbreaking, physically very difficult work, and many people want to get out of that as soon as they can. So I think the more people we have moving into the service sector, the higher the wages, uh, and frankly, the more comfortable the material conditions that they're working in. So that's another thing. Another thing I would say about this, this question is that a lot of this revolves around debates about manufacturing, right? So this comes up all the time. What's happened to American manufacturing? And American manufacturing, in terms of its its proportion of the overall American economy, has certainly declined, as has the number of people working in the manufacturing sector. But the overall economy has grown massively. So has the number of people working in the economy grown massively. So it's less a question of um, sort of manufacturing being in a sort of absolute decline. It's in decline relative to other sectors of the economy. Manufacturing, we are still in the top three countries in the world when it comes to manufacturing, particularly high-tech manufacturing, where we are the best in the world, right? And I, I say in the book, I use the example, whereas in the 1950s, you've gone into, if you walked into a factory, you'd see a lot of men, blue-collar men wearing um, jeans and overalls and all that and doing very physically hard, laborious stuff. You go into a factory now, you see people walking around with, lab coats and half of them are women <laughs> very very different type of circumstance and i think yeah. that's partly reflective of us pursuing our competitive advantage the other thing i'd say is that 
Let's keep in mind that right now, as we speak, so in January 2023, there are 800,000 manufacturing jobs that are not filled. Yeah, yeah. Right. So what's going on there? So it's not as if there's a shortage of jobs in this sector. These are jobs that are not unfilled. Why are people not going into these jobs? Well, partly because they're finding attractive jobs elsewhere that pay maybe pay more, maybe more physically easy to do, etc. But I also think there's a lot of young American men from a lot of blue-collar backgrounds who, as again, I think I mentioned Nick Eberstadt's book, Men Without Work, have checked out mm-hmm. of the workforce. And I think that's there's cultural things going on, there's social things going on, but there's also this thing called the American welfare state that yeah. <laughs> incentivizes them not to work. You... So so these are these are some of the things I think that when you start to ask some of these questions, some of the national conservative or let's more broadly economic nationalist argument starts to look less sustainable. Mm-hmm. You definitely hit on how we have so many concerns at home that we can easily attribute ills to foreign actors that are far more likely to be the result of our own um, uh, house not being in order. That said, that said, I think anybody that wants to communicate clearly what is the central challenge of the 21st century geopolitically, you're, 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 you know, <laughs> your head is in the sand if you're not talking about China. And so you devote, you devote an incredible portion of your book to this um, uh, uh, subject on how largely those that have been of the free market perspective they have to come to terms with the fundamental mistake that was made to assume that with greater economic liberalization, China, mainland China, I should say, mainland China and the Chinese Communist Party would gradually become politically freer. But of course, that's just like us, just Just like like us, right? Um, So so what what is it about the nature of the CCP regime, though, that has made it made it resist these kinds of reforms? And how does that, you know, affect the um, the challenge for um, for us going forward? Well, one of the things I say in the book is that for a time in the 1990s, and you and I are old enough to remember this, uh, there were arguments that on that went along the lines of the more you go down the path of economic liberalization, it becomes harder to resist the liberalization of other sectors of life, be it politics, society, culture, whatever. And this was to a certain extent tied up with Francis Fukuyama's argument, right, about the end of history. We're all going to end up with liberal democracies and market economies. It's just a question of how quickly we get there. So there was this type of, I would I, I describe it as a type of historical determinism and even, even economic mm-hmm. determinism that characterized some of these arguments. Now, not all free marketers were saying that. A lot of free marketers were saying, no, it's not that simple. But that, I think, was the argument that you certainly heard, for example, in the 2000 presidential campaign, when you had, when the whole issue of NAFTA and America entering, allowing China into the WTO was a major issue in that election, remember? And you had mm-hmm. uh, then re- about to retire President Bill Clinton saying, arm balance, I think this is a good thing, et cetera, et cetera, right? He said all that. And then you had George W. Bush sort of saying more or less the same thing, that 
economic liberty tends to bring other forms of liberty in its in its way. Well, so what's what turned out to be the problem with that? I think a couple of things. First of all, the economic determinism. I am not an economic determinist. I'm suspicious of any determinist argument. Very, very suspicious of determinist arguments because I believe in free will. I believe in free choice. And people can make uh, people and governments can make all sorts of choices that don't fit the de- whatever happens to be the determinist narrative. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say uh, is that we underestimated the that China has a political culture going back 4,000 years that's essentially highly authoritarian, a highly authoritarian political culture. Now, there have been spates where in Chinese history where more liberty became apparent and there was a type of liberty tradition within aspects of Confucian thought, but for the most part, it's a highly authoritarian political culture. And uh, we underestimated the resilience of that culture. We also underestimated the willingness of the Chinese Communist Party to do whatever it takes to remain in control. And we should have realized that in 1989 with the Tiananmen Square, Square massacre, that this is a regime, this is a political party movement that's quite happy to turn the military on its own people if they think things are getting out of control and they think they're starting to lose control. So we, we economic determinism was a problem. The underestimation of um, Chinese political culture and its resilience, despite this type of liberalization that was going on. And thirdly, I think we overestimated how much China was, in fact, liberalizing. Most of the the good studies I've seen of this suggest that that the high point of Chinese liberalization of the economy was actually in the 1980s, and that from then onwards, liberalization of the Chinese economy became a much more, a much murkier type of affair. We also know that, particularly in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008, we know that light leading Chinese policymakers looked at the United States and said, well, if that's what capitalism is, we're not sure we want that type of instability. And with the election of Xi as Communist Party secretary, subsequently president, head of the chief military, uh, the central military commission, et cetera, we saw the reemergence of uh, uh, certainly the, a tendency, if now the dominant tendency within the Chinese Communist Party, to revert back to a much more authoritarian, top-down, corporatist, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, state capitalist model of the economy. And Xi has accelerated that, that process. So trade liberalization did not produce the result, the political results that some people were thinking it would produce. And free marketers, those of us who are in favor of um uh, for trade liberalization, et cetera, we need to think about how we deal with that type of reality. Now you'll see in the book, I don't, I don't say this is, this is why we need industrial policy or this is why we need tariffs. I don't say any of that. No, no, I don't because I think that's a, we, we would effectively be replicating some of the mistakes I think the Chinese made and which are now starting to become much more apparent in the Chinese economy itself. The mere fact but they won't tell us a lot about what's going on in the Chinese economy anymore. It tells us something that there's a lot of bad things that are happening that are a consequence of, I would argue, of the state capitalist approach. That said, free traders need to be willing to think about these types of questions. 
just as during the first Washington administration, those who the, the whole trade argument got very close, closely tied up with what do we do about this war between Britain and France that's assumed global proportions? What trade policy do we pursue in those sorts of conditions? So this is not a this is not a new type of challenge. It's a type of challenge that I think statesmen of any type, including those who adhere to free trade positions, have to think their way through when they're they're dealing with these questions. And I use Edmund Burke as an example of a very much a free trader, very much mm-hmm. an economic a market liberal. Yep. There's no question about that. And I think that's often forgotten about by some conservatives who invoke Burke. We need to remember Burke was a market liberal, very yep. much a free trade guy. But if you look at the way he pursued his approach to trade liberalization, it very attentive to the conditions of the time that he was living in. And I don't think to, to pursue the, these types of policies and not pay attention to the conditions in which you find yourself, that's politically deeply unwise. No, I think I think I think this that's a very important um, uh, point, especially because you do embrace greater sanctions on China for their theft of American intellectual property and currency manipulation. Um, now, I think that those are both you know bipartisan and they're accepted as uh, as you know, sort of the floor. But but I think looking for maybe more of those kinds of um, avenues by which to um, point out how. You can't have this. You can't be treating Canada and China on the same plane when it comes to trade, even though they're both huge trading partners for the United States. Um, they're uh, right. I mean, uh, they're just they're just fundamentally different, right? <laughs> we don't have Canadian. Canadian well, the regimes are very different. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so what that means is that, as far as I know, um, the Canadian military and intelligence services don't involve themselves in intellectual property theft. <laughs> in the United States. But there's no question that that when it comes to China and Chinese companies, that's what they do. This is very well established. Um, and really, it was only in the latter years of the Trump administration that the Justice Department started upping and sort of taking much more seriously the degree of intellectual theft that was going on by Chinese nationals and Chinese businesses in the United States. And there was, you know, and there was rightly a crackdown on that. We also know at the end of the Trump administration, there was a piece of legislation passed that basically made Chinese companies adhere to the same types of accounting regulations that everyone else was. So it was really a level playing field. But they also specified that you also need to tell us which members of your board are members of the Communist Party. Right. So we're not telling you that you can't trade here if you have members of your board who are members of the Communist Party. You just need to tell us. We need to know that those sorts of things. And those things strike me. So dealing with the problem of intellectual property theft, severely punishing those Chinese businesses and companies that are engaged in that type of activity or who function as basic proxies of uh, Chinese, the Chinese military or the Chinese um uh, national security agencies, you know, to my mind, using government power to stop those things from going on is completely legitimate, not least because it's theft, right? It's theft. La- la- last, so la- last, um, last question on the China point. 
What do you wh what do you say to those people who will say who will argue because of all of these past transgressions, we should therefore prevent Chinese nationals from buying American land, for example. And you might even say, uh, as a floor, like American land within a hundred you know hundred miles of military bases, uh, just out of national security concerns. But then maybe you, you, you broaden that national security concern to things like you know, domestic farm production. So again, I'm just trying to, I'm trying, I'm trying to raise the awareness uh, for our listeners of just the kind of ideas that have been discussed. Well, the thing I would say, so let me just talk about it in the sort of in general terms. Free traders have always acknowledged, going all the way back to Adam Smith, that national security is a legitimate exception. They've always acknowledged that. We don't sell nuclear weapon technology. We don't freely trade that with China, let alone Russia, right? We don't, we don't do that with hostile regimes. When it comes to military equipment, we don't treat those things the same way that we treat furniture, right? So if, when the American companies sell military technology, to, even to allies, right, there's all sorts of restrictions that are put in place because this is understood to have a national security dimension to it. So that's so that principle is there. And I, I, I don't think there are actually many free traders who say, oh, no, this is just consenting adults contracting across borders. There's nothing really to be concerned about here. No, free, free I think intellectually serious and politically aware free traders have always acknowledged there's a legitimate national security exception. Now, <clears throat> one problem, which I think... Some people, uh, the more market skeptic, uh, some more market skeptic conservatives don't talk about is the way that national security can become a wedge for any number of different things that have nothing to do with national security. And I, I use some examples of that that would became yeah. very apparent yeah. in the case of the Trump administration, where um, you know where things like um, the automobile industry was effectively being de designated as national security because national job security was important for national security. It was one of these very tendentious arguments. But, I mean, you can see that in all sorts of different aspects of the American economy, whereby national security becomes a basis upon which um, people start to <laughs> engage in highly cronyistic forms of behavior. So that's something I think also needs to be acknowledged. When it comes to things like, um, things like uh, land ownership, uh, or ownership of particular companies. I mean, the question you have to ask yourself is, okay, well, well, what is this being used for? If it's just buying land and then doing nothing with it, um, that's very different from <laughs> using land and setting up some sort of facility that's used to actually spy on Americans. So, I mean, I, I think the ownership of land thing, I just need to know a lot more about what precisely is considered problematic about this and how this relates to national security. Because we have all sorts of different um, groups, individuals, companies from other countries who are buying American land, who are investing in American products. Mm -hmm. And I, I really need to see and have it explained to me why and how this threatens national security in a serious way rather than a sort of trivial made-up way before I can say, well, yes, that actually fits a, de a, a, that definitely fits a genuine national security concern. Because I think at the moment, national security is being invoked for all sorts of things that have very little to do with it at all. 
don't know. That's completely fair. I think, uh, you know, if you're a staffer in an, in an administration, I think uh, more often than not, you're, <laughs> you're trying to get as much done and you'll look for any tangentious hook. Um, but I do think it falls to it falls to thoughtful um, folks uh, like us to have to you know call into criticism because you don't want to be the boy who cried wolf. And if everything is national security, nothing's national security. Uh, last major theme in your book is I think something that I was not expecting, and I wasn't expecting you to come back to the founders at the end of the book, um, which is probably my own fault because you've written extensively <laughs> about the founders, um, uh, and so. Um, I guess it came as a little bit of a surprise, more because I uh, saw a few um, uh, invocations of the founders as being the distillers of what it meant to bring forth a commercial republic based on entrepreneurship. Um, and I was hoping you could just briefly um, explain sort of how you thought that that theme tied up the rest of the, you know, t- tied up your book at the end. Um, but then, you know, uh, I, I hope in the, in the last few minutes we have together, you can um, tell me why we should, as Americans in the 21st century, why we should be um, thinking about um, entrepreneurship when the vast majority of um, uh, workers in this country are not business owners. Um, they're, they're workers. Um, and uh, a lot of people will, will look back at the failings of um, the Romney 2012 message as uh, you know, not being um, you know, uh, aware of this um, in uh, you know, his criticism of uh, you know, uh, Barack Obama. Well, there's a lot there as well. So let's start, let's start where you just finished with the, um, the entrepreneurship thing. America remains the world's most entrepreneurial country by far. Now, uh, and that and people who have come to the United States at different periods of American history have noticed this straight away. Alexis Topkin, who I, you, I invoke in the book, he said, everyone here seems to be an entrepreneur. Now, he didn't mean, mean that literally. What he meant was that there was this sense of creativity, a sense of uh, being willing to experiment, to create a business and then just move on to another one. And he talked about this as, as very characteristic of Americans and made it very different from his native France, where everyone was much more sheepish about these sorts of things. But American entrepreneurship, even though we are still the world's leading leader in that area, is in decline and has been in decline since the really, uh, I, I think I come up with figures suggesting that really from the late 1990s onwards, entrepreneurship in the economic sense has started to decline, and we've seen an uptick in political entrepreneurship, the prevalence of cronyism, whereby a lot of people who are very entrepreneurially minded are not thinking about how do I provide goods and services for consumers in a better way or a different way. It's more like how do I get that agency to get me that regulation that's going to fit me and my company in how do I get other people? How right? do I get those green subsidies, those green tax yeah. credits? <laughs> Absolutely, right? So so and that's a problem because when the government is offering those sorts of things, we shouldn't be surprised if a lot of entrepreneurs shift in that direction. So that's the first thing I'll say. And that's a problem. We need to re- because if we lose our entrepreneurial edge, and this ties into your next point about how most people are not entrepreneurs, right? Most people are working for someone else. Well, that's certainly true, but we depend so much upon this relatively small group of people we call entrepreneurs mm-hmm. for 
America's, the, the sustainability and ongoing growth and prosperity of the American economy. So we, we were very, very dependent upon this particular group. Um, because if they go away or if they drift into political entrepreneurship, the rest of us are going to find ourselves in a very difficult set of circumstances. And you're seeing this in some European countries where entrepreneurship is, is cratering in some countries, and that's causing them enormous sort of longer-term economic problems. Now, to get to, to link all this to the founding, the founders disagreed about a lot of economic questions. We know that, right? So you had a, the Hamilton-Jefferson debate mm-hmm. about <clears throat> about industry versus agriculture. But there were different views about tariffs and protectionism, although I would I actually argue that the, the, the differences were far less than I think most people realized. Mm-hmm. So there was certainly, you know, there were policy arguments going on that not dissimilar to some of the arguments we hear going on today. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't really disagree about was that this was going to be a commercial republic. That was a very crucial argument that was occurring right at the beginning. And by commercial republic, they mean things like entrepreneurship. They mean things like free enterprise. They mean things like lots of competition. Just read Washington's farewell address. It's mm-hmm. it's all through there. It's the same with the Federalist Papers. If there's a the Federalist Papers uh, have a very positive view of these things and a quite skeptical view of um, uh, of what we would have called what we would call mercantilist types of policies. So it's sort of written into the American founding, and that should matter for Americans because it means that our identity, because our identity is not about ethnicity, it's not about the sorts of things that we often associate some European countries with. It's about a set of ideals and sets of documents and what the the the, the sort of normative framework that this outlines. That's what defines us as an American. So that means that if we drift away from being what I call a commercial republic, then the very nature of America starts to change in some substantive ways. And we've already seen that. I think with people like the progressive movement towards the end of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, we saw a shift away from that bottom-up, limited government, commercial republic type of framework towards much more of a top-down administrative state, very much influenced, unfortunately, by German university professors, where a lot of these people went and, you know, you know this, these people went and studied in these universities and came back thinking, hey, maybe those Prussians have a better way of thinking about these sorts of things. And we see people like Woodrow Wilson basically saying, oh, you know, the the Declaration of Independence, it's a time-limited thing. We, We can take some things from it, but we need to move on. So that, I think, is sort of what's at stake normatively speaking, when it comes to some of these economic debates, because we're not meant to be a state capitalist society. We can have arguments about levels of tariffs and things like that. We can can argue about those sorts of things. But if we drift away from those fundamental settings towards what I call state capitalism, then we run the serious risk of becoming just another failing European social democracy enduring managed decline. That's, I think, the the real import of what I'm trying to say towards the end of the book. That's what's at stake. It goes beyond the economy because the economic life and commerce has traditionally defined so much of what Americans are. 
but it ties back to this sense of who we're meant to be as Americans and what the American Republic is meant to be. And state capitalism, I don't think, is what we're meant to, is not the direction we're supposed to be going in. Well said. We'll give you the last word there. Um, Again, the book is The Next American Economy by our dear friend Sam Gregg, uh, available right now at fine booksellers nationwide from from Encounter Books. Uh, Sorry, of course, I have to mention Encounter Books, Roger Kimball and the fine team there, always bringing uh, bringing great books to uh, to print. And um, Sam, this was this was timely. This was important for people to be um, aware of the kind of high level discussions and debates happening. Um, And you offer, I think, such a fair treatment throughout the book of um, the positions that you you yourself don't hold. Um, But it's crucial for that understanding, uh, sorry, for for anybody, you know, thinking through these debates to have an understanding because slogans are not going to give us um, anywhere near the kind of clarity we need. Um, I think this is this is such an important book for um, for people to be reading. So um, thank you. And uh, we wish you uh, all the best. Thanks, Garrett. And thanks for having me on. And uh, I'll just say I'm a great admirer of everything that the James Wilson Institute does. A great admirer of Hadley Arcus and all the team there. I think you're doing great work in, in your own way of reminding us of what America is actually supposed to be about. Uh, well, that's, that's too kind. Uh, <laughs> uh, we do what we can. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.